Hey, you're listening to a sermon from Ketchikan Church of the Nazarene. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about our church, you can visit ktnnaz.org, visit us on Facebook, just search Ketchikan Naz, or you can download our free app from the iPhone store or the Google Play store, just search Ketchikan Naz. Thanks for visiting. Hope the Word of God speaks to you today. All right, children, we love you, and we have prepared a special message for you downstairs, so if you are heading towards Children's Church, you may head that way right now, follow Miss Anna. Yeah! You may go to Children's Church. While the children are leaving, I'm going to drink some coffee. Mmm. Ah. You love coffee, can I get an amen? Yeah. You love Jesus, can I get an amen? God, I'm glad that was louder than the coffee amen, okay? (laughs) This morning, we are still in Matthew chapter 22. I feel like we've been in Matthew chapter 22 forever. Um, And I know that's just kind of how it's fallen in between um, my being absent and and other folks filling in and bringing us great word. Um, But we we are wrapping up Matthew chapter 22 today, and I am excited about it. Now, because it is the final story, um, the final story of the uh, Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians coming after Jesus and saying, we want to discredit you, therefore we're going to try and trick you. Therefore, we're going to try and pull the rug out from under your feet in front of the eyes of the people. Therefore, we're going to knock you down one step so that people will listen to us instead of you. And this is the final, like the climactic kind of moment where uh, Jesus is going to get to, in turn, question the Pharisees for the ways that they've been questioning him. So if you'll find Matthew chapter 22, uh, we are going to pray and then uh, stand for the reading of the word. Uh, and we're going to start in uh, verse 34 this morning. But let's go ahead and pray uh, and ask God to speak to our hearts in a special way this morning. Lord, um, we're going to read your word, not just, um, not just the black letters, because we recognize those are your words, but these are the red letters. These are the ones where Jesus is speaking directly. Um, and, uh, and we love hearing from you, Jesus. I pray. Um, that as we read both the black letters and the red letters this morning, we recognize they are both your word to our hearts and lives this morning. That we would take what you have to say and apply it. And Lord, if there's any way in our life which we are not aligned with your words this morning, would you reveal that to us and lead us to repentance so that we might follow you more truly? Father, I pray if there are ways in which we are already aligned with your word, would you encourage us and give us a shot in the arm to continue living that way for your glory? for the good of others. I pray that you'd be with my heart and my mouth and my mind as I speak this morning, that what would come out of me would be directly from your throne room this morning for these folks that are here and for my own heart as well, that we would truly learn what it is to be loved by you and how in turn we are called to love others. We give you all the praise and all the glory for your word. We ask that you'd speak to us now in your name. Amen. You'd read for, if you'd stand for the reading of the word. You know why we do that, why we stand? Uh, It's for respect, right? You stand when the bride comes in, when the groom walks in in a wedding. When we read from Scripture, we stand to show our respect for God. Uh, In the Old Testament, they would read the Scriptures, and they would stand as a complete um, nation of Israel before God, saying, this is what we believe. And so when we stand together, we say, this is what we believe. Then we honor and respect God by doing so. It says this in verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he'd silenced the Sadducees, 
They gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And Jesus said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and the first commandment. And a second is just like it. You will love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends all of the law and the prophets. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, Well, the son of David. And he said to them, How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls the Christ Lord, how is he also his own son? No one was able to answer him a word. And nor from that day on did anyone dare to ask Jesus any more questions. This is the word of the Lord, and you may be seated. I love that. Um, From that day forward, nobody asked Jesus any questions because you can't out-logic Jesus. And, uh, And it took them a while to figure that out. Uh, But that's where they were at the end of this passage this morning. All right. So, so far in chapter 22, the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Herodians have attempted to foil Jesus. And they have been foiled twice uh, in their own attempts. The Pharisees regrouped at this point. They huddled together and they said, we need to ask Jesus another question. It didn't work when we asked him the first question. Didn't work when we asked him the second question. Now we are going to send a lawyer from amongst us, our best and brightest, strongest debater. The job of this person is to know the law and to win debates over it. No questions asked. This guy comes out on top all the time. So they sent in the ringer, right? Like if you want something done right, you do it yourself. The lawyer's like, I got this. I was raised to beat people in arguments about the law. My view will prevail. So the Pharisees sent this guy in. His questions seemed fairly innocent, right? He started like all of the other approaches were. Teacher, oh, rabbi, who we love, who is so smart and wonderful, and only speaks the truth. Teacher, what's the greatest commandment in the law? Now, this question seems innocent, but what we need to know, because we're not of the Jewish culture back in the day, their culture, um, they constantly struggled, debated, argued amongst themselves about how to rank and summarize all of the laws, which ranking would be most important, which law was most important. Was it even possible to set a hierarchy of the law? And so constantly in Jewish culture, there were debates and factions and people were squabbling and quibbling and arguing about whose interpretation of which law order was better. In the Jewish tradition, you need to know there are 613 laws, 613 commandments in the law, 365 don't do thems, okay, 248 do thems, okay, they're called 365 negatives, 248 positives, I call them don't do thems and do thems because that sounds a little better to me, okay. Of the 365 don't do thems and the 248 do thems, they make up 613 laws, And they just debated over and over and over again. They spent most of their religious time trying to prioritize 
these technicalities of the law. Religious leaders and even common Jews constantly and regularly debated these things. So perhaps when the Pharisees sent their ringer in, they thought this question would force Jesus to take a position with one viewpoint or another viewpoint or that third viewpoint that was out there. Ultimately, they were hoping that Jesus would take a position for or against a commonly held view. Therefore, identifying himself as a follower of someone else's opinion on the law. And if Jesus said, well, I think that the law should be organized like this, which is a view held by Pharisee number A, then they could go back to him and say, you follow Pharisee A, a rabbi, you are not the Messiah. If you follow somebody else on earth, then you can't be the Messiah. So they were going to try and get him to say he was under another Rabbi, but um, their question was based on an incorrect understanding of the purpose of the law. Like last week when Jesus told the uh, Sadducees, you are wrong because you don't understand the power of God and you don't know the scriptures. Jesus again says, listen, they don't understand the purpose of the law. They see the law as an arena to debate one another so that ultimately someone could say, I'm the victor, and the other person goes away as the loser, right? Is that the purpose of the law? Is that why God gave us the law? So that we could debate one another, and one person could come out on top saying, ha ha, I win? No. Jesus' reply refocused the people. The law was not given for debates, but the law was given to draw them into covenantal relationship with God and each other. The law was given to draw us into covenant with the Lord, not to cause us to debate with one another. So he continued. He answered their question. He said to the lawyer, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. The second is like it. You will love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, hang everything else, okay? Um, I was reading a commentary uh, this week, and um, it, was, uh, it explained this uh, idea that on these two commandments depends all of the law and prophets. Imagine for a moment, okay, a scroll. Just unroll a scroll in your brain, okay? Um, and then put all of known human history on this scroll, okay? And then back out. And that scroll is seated on another scroll, okay? And on that scroll is everything that God is and does and loves and everything that God is on this scroll. So all of human history is enveloped in the scroll of God, okay? And on one side of the scroll is a golden chain. And on the other side of that big scroll is another golden chain. And those two golden chains go all the way up into heaven and one is attached to one side of the throne, and one is attached to the other side of the throne. Okay? So, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the two chains that God says, this is who I am, and this is how we should live together, and all of human history needs to hang within that. Does that make sense? I thought that was a really neat picture. Um, it really helped me figure that out. Okay. Um, this answer that Jesus gives... Um, is really interesting to me because in the other two times when the Pharisees and Sadducees and Herodians tried to trick Jesus, 
Jesus confronted them afterwards. There were some harsh words like, you are wrong, and don't do it this way, and could have had a V8, and all of these things that he says to them when he challenges and critiques them and takes them to town. This is the third time they've brought a trial before him, and yet it's the first time that he gives a straight answer and he doesn't critique or rebuke in any way. And I think that that's really interesting. Normally, if someone's pestering me about something, pester, 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 by the time they get to the third or fourth time, I'm like, enough already! You know, you know, am I the only one that does that? No? Okay. So Jesus, pestered, 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 third time, pestered, pestered. All right, guys, let's just level. Here's the honest to goodness truth. He was calm. He didn't rebuke them. I think that's really interesting. That tells us about God's character. Jesus answered the first question by quoting scripture. It was a scripture that every Jew recited every day. And it's the Shema. That's what they called it, okay? Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4 through 5. It's one of the first things they teach you in Bible school. You've got to memorize this verse, okay? And this is a scripture that they recited every single day. Every day they said this. It appears in Deuteronomy as an explanation of the first commandment, okay? Um, and a summation of the first five commandments. All the first five commandments have to do with um, God and us vertically, Okay, how God loves us, how we are to love him, very vertical commandments. The second five commandments deal with how we relate to one another because of how we relate to God. Okay, So you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. Um, verse 4 um, of this says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That's the Shema. Every single day, they would repeat that to themselves so that they did not forget the faithful God of the covenant who had brought Israel out of bondage. The only appropriate response for Israel and for us is to love God completely and exclusively. So God says, don't forget, why don't you say it every single day? A complete love that this verse demonstrates. Love the Lord your God with all, and all means, okay, and all your soul, and all means, all, and all your mind, and all means, okay. Um, so, all, this is complete, this is nothing lacking in your heart, soul, and mind. All of you, this kind of complete love implies a commitment to covenant loyalty, okay? That says, we are to love God like this because we are to guard his unique status and place in our heart as the only God, the only one, nothing else. Just God. Jesus identified this kind of devoted love as the first and greatest commandment. If nothing else, people, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. He is referring to a wholehearted devotion to God with every aspect of one's being. From whatever angle you choose to consider it, thought, word, deed, action, emotion, Whatever you are, wherever you are, whatever your brain and heart and mind are, you are to love God with every single fiber in your being because God made every single fiber in your being and God made everything to give him praise and glory. This kind of love for God results in obedience to the things he's commanded. If you have this kind of devoted love for God, everything else falls into place. 
because your priorities are in the right place. It says this, Hero Israel, be careful to keep the law so that it will go well with you and you can continue to enjoy the blessing of covenantal relationship with your Lord. Parents, have you ever said, if you obey me and my rules, it will go well with you in our household? That's scriptural, okay? You're getting that from the Father uh, in heaven who says, children of mine, just love me. And when you love me, your love for me will cause you to obey me because you love me. And then it will go well with you in the land and you will enjoy the blessings that I have for you. Jesus, without pausing, continued. He said, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And I I wondered what it meant when it said like it. Like the second is like it. What does that mean? So I went and looked up some, you know, Greek and languagey things. And I did some research. And here's what I learned. This phrase in the original language, the second is like it. It means the second, second is equal to and inseparable from. These two are intertwined. You cannot do one without the other. In Matthew um, chapter 19, which we studied a few weeks ago, Jesus has shown that this this, um, love your neighbor as yourself is the summation of the second half of the Ten Commandments, where we are to relate with one another in such a way that we are to love each other uh, sacrificially. So Jesus appeals to the love of the neighbor as the second commandment, And it's demonstrated by the important relationship with others in his understanding of the will of God. So if you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you will naturally love others because that is how God loves. And if you have God's love in you, then you are going to love people as God's love. I want you to hear this. You cannot fully love God if you are not fully loving people. Right? If you claim to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but you are unloving to people around you, for whatever reason, you are not really fully loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We need to wrestle with that because that's a really big truth. You cannot fully love God if you are not loving people. They are tied together. As Jesus said, these two laws are inseparable and equal to one another. Jewish interpreters um, back in the day had long recognized the preeminent value of each of these laws. Each of these laws separately, Jewish culture said, are very important. But Jesus was the very first to take the two, fuse them, and exalt them above the other 611 laws. Jesus is answering the age-old debate. Which law should be first? Love. Everything in the 613 laws depends on loving God and loving each other. What are all the laws about? Have you ever read the 613? If not, you should. It's fascinating. You're going to feel so guilty when you're done reading 613 laws. I preached on the Ten Commandments two years ago. It was our Advent series, and one of the things that I did to prepare uh, for that series was I wrote out by hand all 613 laws. Um, And it was... Deeply troubling. Um, it was uh, a time of worship that I've. It's a kind of an unparalleled time of worship as you start to write out these things, and you realize I'm guilty of this one, and I'm guilty of this one, and I'm watching my sins on. You know, it was chalkboard, but I'm watching my sins line up. And by the time I got to 613, it took me a couple of days. I felt nauseous. Huh? 
And then I went back to what I was doing for the sermon series and realizing that Christ came to fulfill the law perfectly so that when I didn't, he did. And it was like, wow, I'm so glad Jesus was here. Um, and, uh, and so if you've not read the 613, I can show you where to read them so that you can have that kind of moving experience as well. Okay. It is impossible to love God without loving people, and it is impossible to love people without loving God. His heart is to love others. And if the relationship is of love is absent in a heart, and yet you keep rules, you end up with legalism. And this is not what God came to institute. God did not come to institute legalism in this world. He came to institute love in this world. So it continues with this passage. The Pharisees gathered together, uh, and Jesus asked them a question, right? Jesus is like, okay, let's play 21 questions. You've asked me a few questions. Let me ask you a few questions. Uh, of note, it says he asked them a question. In the dialogue, he actually asks them three questions, which I think is interesting because they had asked him three questions. And so he's, um, he's matching question for question there. He's trying to lead them to something. So at this point, Jesus had put up with their shenanigans for long enough. He'd played along with their games. And so now he gets into the heart of the matter and the root of every question, the person of Christ, the Messiah. Ultimately, everything the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Herodians were trying to do over the course of these questions was to disprove Jesus' claim on the role of Messiah. They were trying to find a way to discredit him so that they could say, well, he's not the Messiah. He's not the Son of God. He's not the Savior of our sins. And if they were wrong about Christ, if these Pharisees and Sadducees and um, Herodians were wrong about who Christ was, ultimately they had no hope, right? Ultimately they had no future because they were missing out on the Messiah. And God loved them, loved them, not legalized them. He loved them too much for that. So he asks them three questions to reveal the depth of their denial and the depth of their hypocrisy. First question, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Now, the Greek word Christ that he's using here is the one that means anointed one. And it literally refers to the promised prophet, priest, and king who would save the people from their sins. This is, this is like the Jesus as we know Jesus, okay? Revolutionary concept for the Jewish folks back in the day. This is our Jesus that he's talking about. Who do you think he is? And the Pharisees answered like any good Jew would have answered. He's the son of David. Because in all of their scriptures, they know that the Messiah is the son of David. It was commonly accepted knowledge that the Messiah would be a descendant of David. So the Pharisees answered accordingly. Um, Christ is the descendant of David. Here's just a handful of the verses that talk about that in the Old Testament. So this is something they were steeped in. If they knew the scriptures, they knew that Christ, the Messiah, the prophet, priest, and king who would save them from their sins, would be... Uh, a son of David. These are those verses. So if you're interested, you can go read those kinds of verses later. Jesus heard their answer and then followed up with that and said, okay, because um, he quoted uh, Psalm 110. He said, um, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. He quoted uh, that verse to them and they said, well, that's the son of David. And so he followed up and he said, okay, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Pharisees, why don't you interpret that verse in light of the fact that Christ is David's descendant? So if that's your presumption of who the Messiah is, 
take that presumption and apply it to that verse and see what happens. Now, in that psalm, David is writing, and he says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. The Lord says to my Lord, doesn't really mean much to us in the English, right? Because it's Lord and Lord. In the original language, it says this. David wrote, Yahweh said to Adonai. Yahweh said to my Adonai, okay? Two different words are used. Yahweh, the Lord God Almighty, okay? And the other one is my master, my Lord, my Savior, the Messiah, okay? So the Lord God Almighty said to my Savior... Jesus was being careful here to point out that David's psalm was written under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit. There's no mistake in what David wrote here. And he was drawing attention to the fact that by this phrase, my Lord, David was referring to someone other than himself as the little king, the little L Lord. So it would have been interpreted prior to this conversation as the Lord God said to me, David, I'm the Lord of the nation of Israel. I'm the king of the nation of Israel. That's how they would have interpreted it. But Jesus said, okay, you think the Messiah is the son of David. Let's interpret this that way. So uh, the Lord God Almighty says to my Savior, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. David was writing about the Messiah, whom the Pharisees had just said was a son of David. So Jesus' final question for the Pharisees was, how can the Messiah be both David's Lord And David's son. How can the Messiah be his Lord and his son? How is that possible? How can you give birth to the Lord? Jesus' implication was very clear in this line of logic. He's outlawing the lawyer. The Messiah was both Yahweh, the Almighty, and in the line of David. If the Pharisees answered this question they would have to acknowledge Jesus' identity as a son of David and as the Messiah. This entire Psalm 110 is a declaration of the supreme authority of the Messiah. Quoting this first verse from Psalm 110, Jesus highlighted the Messiah's position of authority at Yahweh's right hand and the fact that this Messiah would defeat all of the enemies. The Pharisees had made themselves Jesus' enemies. And to acknowledge him as Messiah by answering this question meant they would have to acknowledge his supreme authority and technically their own defeat. They would have to be under his feet, submitting to his authority. In the New Testament, Psalm 110, factoid for you, is the most frequently quoted Old Testament chapter in the entirety of the New Testament. You want to know why? It points clearly to Jesus' Messiahship and exaltation. Jesus used it and couldn't, it could not be refuted in this situation, right? The smartest lawyers were like, well, we got nothing. He outlogiced us. He won the debate. So the church, after Jesus came and rose from the dead and went back to heaven, Jesus instituted the church. They had walked with him and talked with him and learned from him and read his words. And they said, well, if Jesus used this verse to with authority prove his messianic title then we are going to use that verse to authoritatively prove his messianic title in every chance we can get. That's why it's the most quoted. Because to Jewish culture, that was the verse that said, this is the one that Jesus is Messiah. 
If Jesus used it to refute his claim that he wasn't Messiah, the rest of the church could use it to refute the claims that he wasn't Messiah. It's going to prove he was. Paul used it in Hebrews 10. I don't actually have that verse up there, but it says this. When, listen to Paul's verse. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God and waited from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool at his feet. Sound like Psalm 110? Yeah, that's because it is Psalm 110 from Paul's heart. The Pharisees remained silent from that day on. Jesus had brought the verbal argument to a close, neat and tidy. He passed their test. He, they flunked his. And in the cultural context of the day, of these debates, of whose law is greater than whose, it meant that Jesus' interpretation of Scripture was superior to that of the Pharisees. In every instance of conflict in chapter 22, Jesus answered best. The natural conclusion in their culture was that his interpretation was better and should be followed, which is why they dared not ask Jesus any more questions. And it wasn't because they believed the truth. It was because they were afraid to face the truth and act on it. Okay? They might have believed it, but they didn't act on it. Religious leaders were blinded by tradition and position and selfish pride that they perhaps could not see and would not see the truth and receive it. Jesus was the Messiah. He is the original lawgiver, and he came to simplify laws into love. Okay? So that's the story. Now what are we supposed to do with it? Okay? What are we supposed to do with this? Charles Wesley, um, uh, great, great guy in the history and tradition of the Nazarene church, okay? He defined holiness, okay? This fancy word holiness that we use in the Nazarene church, several other denominations use. This idea of perfection um, that we might look at and go, I don't even know how to get there, okay? Because who can be perfect? Well, God says, be perfect for I am perfect, be holy for I am holy, which is a promise to us that we can be. Charles Wesley defined holiness as nothing more and nothing less than loving God with one's whole heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. Do you want to know what it is to be made perfect? It is to do what Jesus said, what the whole law and prophets hangs on. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Charles Wesley understood that everything else that we know from God depends on these things. The, the doctrine of entire sanctification, the idea that we can be fully formed into the image and likeness of Christ, this idea of being made perfect in the image of Christ. Everything about being made in the image of Christ can be perfectly summed up in these two commandments. If you want to be perfect, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. We must love. Therefore, um, we must understand that love is a choice, not an emotion. Okay? We must understand this. I want you to read this definition with me. Okay? Love is a demonstrated preference for the well-being of others over and above myself even at great personal expense, by the help of the Holy Spirit. The best definition of love I ever run across. I'll give credit where credit's due. Pastor Cliff Purcell coined this definition many, many years ago. I have sat under this definition for probably close to 15 years. It has transformed my idea of love. How did Christ fill this definition? He demonstrated a preference for us, did he not? When he left the throne room... 
and he entered into humanity. He left everything that he knew and loved and was comfortable with, and he set it aside in demonstrating a preference for us. He did it over and above his own well-being, right? Philippians tells us that he counted um, equality with God not something to be grasped at, but that he became incarnate. He wrapped himself in flesh. He came to earth, and he did it even though it cost him his life. It was at great personal expense to him. Uh, John 1, 1 John uh, 3.16, by this we know love, that he laid his life down for us, and we ought to lay our lives down for others. He did it at great personal expense, laying his life down for us, and he did it in the power of the Holy Spirit, 1 John 4. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. It is not through our own power, but through God's power in us. And this is what Jesus came and demonstrated for us. He is showing us that we don't have an out from love when we don't feel like it anymore. Love is a choice. It's not about us. It's about God's character and how it's demonstrated through us. 1 John 3.16 through 18 reads this. By this we know love, that he laid his life down for us. And we ought to lay our lives down for others. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Right? Um, Love is more than an emotion. I won't say it's not an emotion. Okay? But it is far more than an emotion. And if we leave love at an emotion... We are not really understanding what love is. Love is a demonstrated preference for the well-being of others over and above myself, even at great personal expense, by the help of God's Holy Spirit. Love is a choice and an action and something we choose day in and day out to do. Okay? Love is also together, not alone. Okay? Um, I want to share two real stories with you that demonstrate the power of this. This idea of being together. We love our neighbor as we love ourselves. There's this community understanding that love is best expressed in togetherness. Here's two stories. Martin Niemöller, who was a Protestant scholar in Europe during World War II, had written about religious and political persecution of the Jews under Hitler. Quote, in Germany, the Nazis came for the communists, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a communist. They came for the Jews... I didn't speak up because I wasn't a Jew. They came for the trade unionist. I didn't speak up because I wasn't a trade unionist. Then they came for the Catholics, and I was a Protestant, so I didn't speak up. And then they came for me. But by that time, there was no one to speak up for anyone. He confesses that his failure to act in love on behalf of his neighbors left him without neighbors when he needed love himself. Self-love and neighbor love cannot be separated. If you live by a policy of love, you must become involved with others who do not agree with you, whose politics and religion differ from yours. You are not commanded to agree with them. You are commanded to love them, right? Here's the second story. 1979, a young man named Tom Tucker was flying his plane across Oklahoma when its engine failed. He looked for a clearing, but as he landed his plane, he overshot the clearing. He crashed into the trees. His forehead was crushed. 
the roof of his mouth split completely in two, jaw broken in nine places. He was rushed to the hospital to have emergency surgery, and the attending surgery gave him about 10 minutes to live. Nevertheless, the surgeon made a desperate attempt to save him. The surgeon labored over him for nine and a half hours, and as he completed what turned out to be a successful series of operations, he growled to his nurse as he left the operating room, if that guy dies now, I'll kill him. <laughs> Why did he care? He was just a surgeon doing his duty, right? Something else happened that day. Something that Jesus would call love. The dying man brought out the very possible best of that surgeon. He became obsessed with the man's welfare. And he gave everything he could to save that man's life. This is why the Bible ties in self-love with the love of our neighbor. We need somebody, lots of somebodies, to bring out the best in us. If we are only ever content with ourselves, we never really discover who we are, what we have, or what we can do and give. It is only through the love of others, others who cannot repay us, that we become our best. Jesus' appeal to the love of a neighbor as the second commandment demonstrates the importance of relationship with others in our understanding of the will of God and the love of God. I will repeat what I said earlier. You cannot fully love God if you are not loving people. They are tied together. Christ did not stay in heaven with himself forever. He entered humanity. He entered human history. He entered to be with us in togetherness, right? To sing songs around the campfire with his disciples. To walk the road with people when it got difficult. To enter into living rooms and into graveyards to change lives. 1 John 4, 7. Let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. I.e., if you do not know God, you do not love. Here's the other verse, 1 John 4, 19-21. We love because he first loved us. This commandment we have. Whoever loves God must also love his brother or sister or neighbor. That annoying co-worker at work. Okay? Here's the third thing we need to understand. Love never fails. Love is well-defined by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians. I'm not even going to try to like, expound on this one. He does perfectly. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. It does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. That's the kind of love that Christ has for us. That's the kind of love that he calls us to have for one another. It is a mark of obedience, a mark of maturity, a mark of holiness to simply love and be loved. And if that is the mark of perfection, if that is what Jesus says, this is what everything depends on, if you are a disciple, these are the things that you do, you love, 
then we need to evaluate our heart and mind and soul and strength this morning. We need to evaluate our maturity in this idea of love. There's a really, really old dead dude. I love the old dead dudes. They got it right most of the time. Not all of them, but some of them. Bernard of Clairvaux, okay? French guy. Uh, He lived in roughly uh, 1080 A.D., okay? And he wrote um, what is called a spiritual ladder, the spiritual growth ladder. It's pretty solid, but over the years, people have debated adding a few things to it. I modified it slightly, but this is his spiritual growth ladder, and I want you to evaluate yourself in terms of your understanding of love, okay? Here's the bottom of the ladder. Love of self for self's sake. This means, this is where I begin. I love me because I'm me. This is a selfish kind of love. Um, It's a uh, I need to make sure that I survive kind of love. It's a survival love. Um, It's not necessarily an... uh, An angry love, but this is where everyone starts. Babies, this is where they are. They cry because they're hungry. They need something. They cry because their diaper needs to be changed. They need something. I love myself because um, I'm me, okay? Then love of neighbor for self's sake. I love my neighbor for what they'll do for me. I'll love somebody only if I get something in return. This is not a free kind of love. I'll give something and not expect anything, but this is the kind of love that says, I love you because I know one day I'm going to need something from you. Then there's love of God for self's sake. I love God for what he can do for me. He's my genie. So when I need something, I pray to God and he gives it to me because I'm me and I'm looking out for me. Love of God or love of self for God's sake. He made me. I want to make him proud of me so that he won't feel like he made a mistake in creating me. So I I love myself because God loved me. This is the beginning of knowledge of love right here. I love God because he made me and loved me. And if he sees something in value in me, then perhaps there might be something of value in me that goes beyond selfishness. Love of God for God's sake. I love him because he's the creator. Come hell or high water, he's the God I'm going to follow. I love God for who he is, not for what he does for me, but simply for who he is. He's powerful and merciful, and I love him. Job understood this kind of love, right? He gives and takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord, right? Then love of neighbor for neighbor's sake. God made me and God made others. He's my father. He's their father too. They're made in his image. He loves them like he loves me. He loves them through me. I love my neighbor because I love my neighbor. And then love perfected. I know love because he loved me. It's unconditional and unending. I am compelled by Christ's love towards me to live a life that is demonstrated in that same way. Unconditional and unending love in everything I do. I want to be seen as Jesus' love. That's love perfected. This morning, we have a chance to understand in our own hearts and minds that kind of love for ourselves. If you do not yet understand the fact that God loves you, loves you, not just likes you, 
He actually loves you. That sometimes is difficult for us to understand because, but I've done, you know, and I've said, and I've hurt, and, you know, I've been in places I shouldn't have been, and we have these lists of things that we think we want to use to disqualify ourselves from God's standard of holiness and perfection and the upward call of his image. And yet God says, I love you with an unconditional, unending, never stopping, never breaking, always and forever kind of love. And parents, we tell our children, there is nothing you can do that will ever cause me to stop loving you. I will love you no matter what you do. I might not like what you do, but I'm your parent and there's nothing you can do that caused me to stop loving you. Parents, we get that, right? This is how God is towards us. It doesn't matter what we've done or what we've said or what we've not done or what we've not said. God loves us with a never-stopping, never-breaking, un, uh, unstopping, never-breaking, all the not-endings, okay? His love endures forever. And if you've not ever experienced that kind of love, God wants you to know that he's already paid the price for the forgiveness of your sins, and he's just waiting for you to say, I want, I want to be loved. I want to move from up the ladder. I want to move from... Um, love of self for self's sake to I want to love God and I want to love myself because you love me and it changes your identity when you start to love yourself because God loves you because you see yourself as something very costly in God's eyes because he died for you and that changes the course of your life then because if he died for you he died for others right and you want other people to know that because you know where you were before knowing that about your own life and you want other people to know and experience that as well I'm going to pray, and then we're going to worship this morning. Um, and as, as we pray, um, if there's anyone who's never experienced the love of God before, this would be a great opportunity to say, I'm not sure how to go about it. I don't even know how it works, but I'd really like to know more about this love of God. This would be a great time to talk to God about that. I guarantee he's ready and waiting to talk with you. And if you walk with God, but you struggle in knowing that he loves you despite some things you've done, or how could you even possibly love other people? God wants to help you with that as well. He wants to draw you further and closer to this idea of perfection, loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. Let's pray. Father, um, Scripture tells us that you are love, period. Um, a better description of you has probably never been written. You are love, everything that is loving, and love, like we read from Corinthians this morning, it never fails, it never gives up, it always protects, it's self-sacrificial, it endures, it's not easily angered. There are things that it says no more to because they're, they're hindrances to our life or harmful to us, and love would say, don't do that anymore. Lord, if you're saying that to some hearts this morning, don't do that anymore. Would you make that abundantly clear to those hearts so that they can stop doing the things that are hurtful to themselves and others and instead rejoice in the forgiveness and grace of your unending love and start living in a way that is not harmful but beneficial? And Lord, if there's those of us that are here this morning that, man, we love you, but we want more love. We want to be characterized by that love. We want to demonstrate that kind of love. Would you just open up the floodgates this morning and pour out your never-failing love upon us? We want desperately to know more of your love this morning.
We want desperately to be in your presence and in your kingdom and filled with your Holy Spirit this morning. We want to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you love us even though we've sinned against you. We've done things we shouldn't have done. Father, would you reveal that to us as we worship you this morning? Would you teach us how much you love us and how much these things that you've done for us are? Would you encourage our hearts? And as we sing these words of praise to you this morning, would they come from a place of deep love in our heart? And would you hear it and receive it? As we love you, will you love us back? Would you let that love back and forth grow and grow and grow and grow and grow? until it can no longer be contained in our own body, but it has to spill out to those around us so that we fulfill that perfection and holiness. We give you all the praise and all the glory for what you're going to do now as we sing praises to you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Lord, your love, regardless of anything else, your love remains. May we live and act and breathe and think and move in your love today and tomorrow and the next day and every day until we see you face to face. Receive the benediction. Go and be loved by God and love out of the fullness of that. Amen? Amen. Amen. Go in peace.